Welcome to Last First Date Radio, featuring interviews with experts in dating, relating, and mating in midlife. And now, here's your host, Sandy Weiner. This is episode number 431 with Susan Ways, Finding Love After Loss. Hello, everybody. I'm Sandy Weiner. Welcome back to Last First Date Radio, where we believe that a woman of value naturally attracts the respect and rewards she deserves in life and love. And speaking of woman of value, I hope that you have checked out my new book. It's called Becoming a Woman of Value, How to Thrive in Life and Love. And it's filled with personal and client stories, expert interviews, and 30 tips and exercises to help you step more fully into your value. It's available on Amazon Kindle and paperback. And every week I share a tip from the book. And this week's tip is learn how to delegate. I was the worst delegator ever. I grew up in a home where everybody just, you know, you did for other people, but it wasn't something to, you know, you didn't ask for help. You didn't, you know, even think of asking for help. And oh my God, it is so helpful to know what you need and know that you can't do it all, especially women. We need to be able to say, okay, I I would really love for you to do this. So if you are a person who does it all, I challenge you this week to delegate one thing, even if it's to your kids, to do the laundry. I mean, how many of us have grown kids living in our houses who don't contribute to taking care of the home, to paying for groceries, whatever it is, find one thing and delegate and see how you feel. Before I bring Susan onto the show, I just want to let you know, if you're not yet a member of my Facebook group, Your Last First Date, please join us. It is a wonderful group for women over 40 who are single or in relationships and want to really grow and have a positive approach to dating and relationships. This is not a place that's going to let you just rant and rave, rage against men or relationships. It's really to help you grow as a person. I'm a big believer in our ability to grow and um, really manifest the love that we deserve. And in this group, you will get the kind of support that will help you get there. So join us at your last first date. And now for my guest, Susan Ways. She's a professional speaker, a blogger. She's an HR professional, and she's been coaching professionals for over 25 years. After the loss of her husband to cancer, she started a podcast called Tendrils of Grief. It's about hope to help others grieving navigate the devastating and confusing space of grief. Welcome to the show, Susan. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. I'm really happy to have you. And uh, we had a, a guest, both of us have had a guest on our show that recommended us to each other, Ashley Wellman. And if you haven't checked out her show yet, she talked about the loss of her husband suddenly when she was very young. And it was a great show. And I know that you loved having her on your show and it was just like a mutual love fest. So so we're here today. I'm really happy she connected us. I am very excited too. And she was on my show. She was wonderful. I listened to her on your show. It is a must listen to for your audience. So I do hope they tune in. Thank you. And I'll post the links to both of our episodes in the show notes. So let's talk about your story. Um, How old were you when your husband passed away? 
So he, I was 51 when he passed away. He was 49 and he had a 15 month bout with cancer. And it was a very rare aggressive form of lung cancer that generally hits younger males in their thirties or forties. And it is a hundred percent fatal. There are no survivors after five years. Most people pass within the first year of having it. And so it was, it was quite a journey and he was a non-smoker, didn't do, he never did an illegal drug in his life, didn't drink, was relatively healthy, paid attention to his health and ended up with this cancer that just made no sense and really just challenged my reality on so many different levels. I can't even imagine how devastating that must have been. Uh, The only thing I can compare it to is one of my best friends was diagnosed with lung cancer with no smoking history also. And she was gone in five months. And it was just, she just was like one day called me and said, are you sitting down? I have cancer and it's fatal. It was just like, ugh. So I, I can't, I can't imagine what you went through with this short time period where he was failing. And I know how that cancer eats you away also. It's just awful. It it was quite a journey and it is this progressive downward spiral and you don't really have time to get your head wrapped around it because just when you think you've gotten your head wrapped around the one piece of it, you go down another phase. And so it was just continuously moving and believing that you will be the miracle, trying to find the miracle. And I had so much faith that he would be the miracle and would survive. And I honestly, it wasn't until he was very close to death, actively dying, that I had to resign myself to the fact that we were not going to be the miracle. Yeah, it's you have hope beyond hope. And I mean, it's it's actually a good response, I think, to continue to hope and to try and not give up until it's really clear that it's the end. And you mentioned that that going through this has changed you in many ways. So can you elaborate a little bit about what changed for you? Sure. I I had a lot of different things that were going on at the time. And he, he and I did everything together. We had a really great marriage and we were in love. We were best friends. We had all of that. And I lost that. And my friends were all, they fit neatly into my life with him. And now all of a sudden I was a single mom, which I didn't want to be. And here I was, I have a daughter who's now 16 and she was 13 when he passed away and trying to kind of redefine myself as a mom, redefine myself as a friend, because I needed people to show up in very specific ways in my life. And it's different when you're married and a couple than when you're single and grieving. And so it's, I also, as you talked about learning to delegate, I'm not someone who likes to ask for help. And it was very hard. I became really humbled and I had to ask people for help because the things that he did, I now was responsible for doing. And I was working full time and grieving and, and I really just needed people to be there to help support me. And I had to learn to ask for help. 
I also was working for a company that was not grief friendly. And I've done some podcasts and have spoken to other people on creating a workplace that is grief friendly because everyone is going to have a grief experience in their life. And it doesn't have to be death. It can be divorce. It can be losing a job. It can be illness, anything. There's so many different grief experiences that we have th through our life. And they, this company was particularly unkind to me during a very vulnerable time in my life. And I had to make the decision to leave. They tell you not to do any, make any big drastic decisions in the first year. And it just wasn't good for my soul. And I think after seven months of dealing with that type of behavior, I stood up for myself in a really bold way. And I just quit and took a job making a lot less money where I could kind of heal and rest and take care of myself. And it was just really the best decision. And I think that was kind of the first step in my true healing and then from there, a series of things that I just opened myself up to, even though I was grieving and I had some really terrible days. And so I don't want people to think that I just all of a sudden sprung into functionality because I didn't. I had it's a roller coaster ride and you're on hills and valleys all the time. But I felt like when I started to open myself up to that energy of possibility, and standing up for myself and stepping into my own power because you feel like a victim when someone is taken from you in that way. And I, I just needed to get my life back. I needed to claim my power back. And that was really the first big, bold move I made to do that. I love that you took a stand for yourself. Obviously, this is an important piece for me and my, my own journey, but also the book I wrote is all about showing up, standing up, speaking up for yourself, because it is, it is a game changer. And it is honoring yourself. You know, and I, I think I, I understand the, the reasons why people say don't make any big decisions. It's like if you made a rash decision to just move and leave the place because you were uncomfortable there, that might not be the best decision to make when you're still grieving. But taking a stand for yourself, being willing to make less money, but know the importance of healing and taking care of yourself and reclaiming your power who you are and redefining who you are really, because it is the end of a part of your life's journey and who you are as a single is very different than who you were as a couple. And so that sounds like you went through a lot of healthy changes after your husband passed away. I did. I did a lot of work on myself. I, I did a lot of self-reflection. I just needed to understand how I could show up better in the world, how I could be the best version of myself because my whole identity was taken from me. I was someone's wife and I was part of a couple and I had all of these things in my life that now I wasn't part of a couple anymore. I wasn't somebody's wife anymore. I didn't have, and it's silly little things like when there's a bump in the middle of the night and you tell your husband to go and check that out. Now, now it's me. I have to go check it out. If something isn't working or something needs to be done around the house, I'm, I've become a YouTube fix it expert and I can, I've repaired my washing machine. I repaired my garage door on my own and I'm out there trying to figure it out. And so it, it is 
this whole reinvention of who you are, but you have to do the work. And I had to go through the grief and I had to feel all the feels around the grief, but I also needed to do the work because what I knew at the end of this was that I didn't want to feel this way for the rest of my life. And so I had to dig deep and I did all kinds of different treatment modalities. I call it the grief toolbox because there's not a one size fits all for treatment. And today something might work tomorrow. It may not. And something else works. So it's just really investing in yourself and doing that work. Yeah. So I want to address a few things. Uh, I, I think having that vision of where you want to be at some point and that you don't want to be stuck in just the, the, the grief stages your whole life. Like, yes, you will go through a lot of those stages. It goes up and down. It's not a, it's not a linear process. But a lot of people get stuck in one stage and never leave. And I was just talking to a friend of mine whose sister lost her son probably seven years ago. And she is so angry and so also in denial. Like she was in denial the whole time he was sick. Like really the doctors were like, he's in a vegetative state. He's never going to grow out of that. And so so she didn't accept that this was what it was ever. And... It's just so unhealthy, the, all the all the stuff that is that she's still holding on to. And I understand it. You know, my my ex-husband held on to a lot of anger and um, really anger and depression for a long time after we lost our child. And it's, you know, you can't blame anybody for how they grieve, but this woman in particular has alienated so many people from her life. And at a point when you're, when you need support and you just talked about the support of friends and of other people and asking for help instead of pushing it away, which is what she's doing. It's like, she's self-sabotaging constantly and staying in the, staying in the grief stage where from my understanding, and tell me if you feel differently about this, a lot of times people who are grieving will stay stuck as almost an, an allegiance to the person who passed away. I agree with that a hundred percent. And I call it almost like a dysfunctional blanket that we wrap around ourselves because for some reason we find comfort with that dysfunctional blanket around, around our grief or around protecting us. And it is, it's also not being sure because when this happens to you, you feel like bad things happen to me and you find it hard, or at least for me, I found it hard to trust in the universe or trust in God or trust in a higher power, whatever that looks like for you, because I started to get into that space. Good things don't happen to me. And that becomes a protect, protective blanket as well, because then when bad things happen, you, you get the gift of being right. And so I didn't want the gift of being right. And again, that came from the self-work, but you do feel like, why should I be happy when he's not here to be happy? Or how can I move forward? Also, I think people get attention from being a griever. And I've seen that with people in my life who have really latched onto the grief from my husband's death, who maybe weren't even close to him when he was alive, but now people, they get to be the grieving, whatever, and people pay attention to them and feel sorry for them. And there's comfort and validation and you matter. 
and things that they don't feel that are broken inherently at the core of their soul. Yeah, that's a great point. We, we learned about this in coaching school, actually, the addiction to suffering. There are people who, whether it's being a victim of something or suffering and grieving, the pity instead of empathy and a healthy connection, it's, it's really you're getting felt sorry for and that gives you some hit of whatever you're looking for. And it's really an unhealthy pattern. It's a shame because life is so much greater than just getting attention for suffering. I wanted to talk back to what you had said about hope mm -hmm. and about how important it is to have hope. And that's really at the end of the day, all we have, any of us grieving or not, the hope of things being good. And I think once you lose that hope, you get into a really bad place and it's difficult to get out of that. I totally agree. And my tagline for lastfirstdate.com is hope and confidence to love again. I chose that tagline because both are important. You need the skill set and you also need to have faith that you can find love again. And um, so that's, that's where we are. So what gave you the courage to date again? So I did not want to be alone. I loved being a part of a couple. And you hear people all the time saying, oh, I'm fine on my own. I can be alone. Well, there's truth in that, but both statements can be true. I'm fine on my own and I can be alone, but I don't want to. I want to be a part of a couple. And both of those things are very true for me. And I felt better about my life as part of a couple. And I enjoy having that person. And I believe in love and I believe in the beauty of having that sacred space with someone where they know things about you that the rest of the world doesn't. And I had it and I wanted to believe that I could have it again. And I hadn't dated in a really long time. So it was super scary to get out there as a now mature person and start to date. And I had to figure a lot of things out. It was funny because one of the dating coaches calls it a test lab, like the man test lab. And I felt like that's what I was in because I was like, nope, this is not going to work. Nope, this isn't going to work. But all of that is important in finding out what it is that you do want and what will work. And so I have really, I had a curiosity and we talked about that in our pre-interview. I just had a curiosity about dating and is this possible? And I wanted it to be possible. And I kind of leaned into that curiosity and into that possibility. And again, it doesn't mean it was easy and it wasn't a bed of roses. And I kissed a lot of frogs along the way. And it, it but it was a really great self-discovery journey for me because it's about me. It's not about all those other men. It, it's really about who I um, and how I show up in the world and how I can be that best version of myself. So I am a woman of value that a man would want to be in a quality relationship with. It is scary to date again, you know, especially if a lot of time has gone by. So whether you've experienced the loss of a marriage or a loss of a partner and you haven't dated in 20, 30 years, I mean, so many women haven't dated even longer than that. And it's, we have a lot of um, widows in our Facebook group who come in going, I don't know where to start. And yeah, it is scary, but you had curiosity and you took steps and you were open to that dating test lab. I, I believe that we have practice dates until we can 
really find the right person. And there's a sense of knowing when you find that person because you've been on dates and you have learned, you know, maybe I shared too much on the first date. Maybe I didn't set a boundary early enough. Maybe, you know, what I'm learning is I don't really want to date people like this anymore. I, I like that. Or maybe I thought this was going to work, but that's not working for me. So it's it's really, if you can course correct along the way, you know, I that's how I coach. You know, it's like, let's try this. Let's see how it works. What are you learning about yourself? What are you learning about men? What are you What are you going to do differently next time? And it's like, what are you proud of that you did well? And what are you learning? And what can you do next time? And it's, it's if you approach life that way, there's no regrets. It's like, okay, just trying. And you don't get attached and you don't fall in love with every possibility of every person who's out there, but you start to really have confidence in yourself. And it sounds like you, you really grew so much in the process. I did. And there was so much I learned about myself and I'm a female executive. I work around a lot of men. I have to show up with that masculine energy, but I realized that that doesn't suit me well with dating and it becomes emasculating. So I had to learn how to balance that, how to be authentically me, but not show up too emasculating or too bold. And I've taken a step back and, and I actually enjoy it. I love a man that takes not takes charge in a, a controlling, aggressive kind of a way. But I, I like a man that lets you know that you're the first thing he thinks of when he wakes up in the morning. You're the last thing he thinks of when he goes to bed at night, that it's important for him to see you, that he's excited to make the weekend plans with you. And I didn't have to be the driver of all of that because I would get frustrated and I would feel like I was just pursuing and chasing. And I didn't like the way that felt at the end of the day. And so I realized a lot of what I wanted through exploring what I didn't want. And they're just, instead of me saying, I don't like this, I don't like that. I really started to say, well, I'm not excited about a man who has a bad relationship with his ex-spouse. Cause that was shocking for me was now dating people who are divorced and they had a bad breakup and they had a terrible relationship with their ex-spouse. I don't want somebody that's going on vacation with their ex-spouse or hanging out with them on weekends, but I want someone that can be in a room with them and have a civil conversation. Like I said, I want someone that's going to make me feel like I'm a priority in their life. I know we all have kids and jobs and I don't want to say, Hey, I need to be number one, but I definitely want to be at the top of your list and the person that you just really want to spend time with and you're excited. I, I just want to see that excitement from someone. And I, I learned all of that on this journey, but I learned it through not getting it or seeing another side that I didn't like. Yeah, we often learn from what we don't get, what it is that we really want. And really spoken as a true woman of value because I see so many women tolerating the relationships where they don't get that, you know, I know women who are with men in particular with men who, who don't have boundaries with an ex and the ex is showing up at every holiday thing at every, everything. And, and she's pushed away almost, you know, and ignored in that relationship instead of prioritize, instead of him taking a stand. And so I learned that in my marriage because my husband prioritized his mom and his dad over me and that was not okay. And I would never, ever put up with that again. 
it's just not okay. You know, you, your parents are important, but then if they take precedence over your wife, mm -mm, you can't, that's just marginalizing and pushing somebody to the side. And I think it sends a very confusing message, at least for me, because if you're telling me that this relationship is over, but yet this person is showing up in very bold ways in your life and moving into a space that should be where I am, such as, like you said, the holiday, showing up at the holidays, and that's the space where I should be. I love what you said about marginalizing, because it does feel like, wait a minute, this, my kids will say, this makes me feel some kind of way. And I, that's, and I end up feeling some kind of way about that. And it's not a good way, but I don't want to have to be that person that says you can't talk to your ex-wife or she can't be here. And so I almost want somebody that doesn't put me in that position because it doesn't feel good to have to set those types of boundaries. And I don't feel like you should have to, like, I want somebody that comes to the table understanding that, Hey, this is my person now and you're not. So you are now on the back burner and this person's on the front burner and you're going to have to accept that as uncomfortable as it might be. It's interesting what you say that you want someone who sort of already gets it. I think a lot of people just don't get it. And I, you know, I'm an advocate for asking for what you want and seeing if they just didn't realize it. And if they're willing to do what needs to be done without pushing back and saying you're wrong and marginalizing you, I, I personally would give somebody a chance to repair before just writing them off because, um, I, and sometimes that comes back to bite me, but I, I do believe that a lot of people just don't see that their boundaries have been weak. You know, they want to make everybody happy and they end up making nobody happy. And I've seen this so much in my life, you know, where you're a people pleaser and so you can't set those boundaries. So I, I personally like to give people a chance. I wouldn't give them five chances. I would give them a chance. But I do think, you know, what you're saying, I totally agree that, that you want somebody who can set a boundary who really respects your boundaries and respects that you are a priority and that you're cherished in his life. And I think what you're saying is brilliant. And I do agree that you should give someone a chance and that you should speak your piece and how, and let them know how you feel. I think it can be confusing because I've dated men that have had very controlling ex-wives and these wives will say, you know, oh, well, it needs to be this way for the sake of the children. We need to do this for the sake of the children. But it's not normal for divorced couples to vacation together. It's not normal for divorced couples to spend all of their holidays together and hang out together, having family time on the weekends. The kids know you're divorced and that's the purpose of divorce. And so you have two separate lives and two separate family experiences. It's not that one cohesive family unit. And that just has been a bizarre spectator sport for me to, to watch that with different men that I've been involved with. Yeah. I, I, I agree with you on that, that it's when you see that kind of controlling behavior, there's, there's another dynamic there. It's not just about the wife. It's about who he became in that relationship and who he still is. Right. And yeah, so that would be concerning for me. I, I do know some couples who have both remarried and blended beautifully, but they are clear. We have boundaries. <laughs> we know who we are. We know what we want, but it's easier when both 
couples are health, health, have a healthy relationship and they're partnered well to come together for the sake of the kids for certain occasions. Absolutely. And I do agree with that because there are maybe a birthday or maybe a, a, a graduation, a wedding, something where people have to be together, but there's still a degree of separateness that needs to happen and not be like, let's pose for the cameras if we're one big happy family unit, because it's not. And I think that that becomes confusing for the children and confusing from anybody looking in, like from an optic perspective is what I always say in HR. We have to look at the optics of this. That's a, that's a good way to look at it. So as a widow, and, and this, this is something I'm really curious about, um, a lot of widows feel like they're going to get taken advantage of when they put widow down on an online dating app or site, and that there's a lot of scammers out there who are going to see you as vulnerable. I'm curious what obstacles you faced as a widow dating. So there are a lot of scammers out there. And when you put widow down and they particularly look for that because they think that you've come into some life insurance money and they know that you've had love taken from your life. And so they'll come in very quickly with love and attention and the things that you're missing and they will fill a hole in your soul. And then you become afraid of losing that space that they occupy because they come in fast and furious. And it's just, I, I really, so those were some obstacles and I learned lessons through that. And I know if you can't see someone face-to-face, -face, if they're overseas for business or trapped in a foreign country or, or whatever, and they come to you with a sob story of needing money to get out of the country, to help them get out of the country or to help just whatever it is, get surgery, whatever they're looking for. It, you have to be so careful with that. If it seems too good to be true, it is. And so there's plenty of men here that you can see face to face and that you can date. So that was one of the obstacles was sifting through those because these men are a lot of times, some of them are very low level criminals, but some of them are very sophisticated criminals and they're really well-crafted with what they do. And so you have to be careful and you have to always be vigilant of that and let that play out. And it will. The other obstacles I found were just men. I, I don't know what this whole thing is with sending pictures of themselves naked. And I'd be talking to a guy and I'd think, wow, we're having a, you know, getting along really well. I really like this guy. I'm curious. And the next thing I know, I'd get a picture of his private parts and I'm like, what? Like, where did this come from? And I had to learn to immediately block those guys because that's a value. Like at first I was like, why did you send me this? Did I give you an indication that I wanted this? Did I somehow come off too <laughs> sexual? But then I was like, nope. But the, the more it happened, I was just, you got blocked immediately because that's terrible judgment. That's a value issue. And I'm not interested in that. The third obstacle I think I came up against were people that just are so caught up in their mess that they can't get out of their own way. And I, I just, there was one guy that was lovely. He's actually a radio DJ in West Virginia and really lovely man. But uh, one night we were talking, we were going to talk, we had talked every night. And one night I didn't feel good. I had a really bad headache. I had had a really stressful day and I sent him a text message and said, Hey, look, I just, I don't want to talk tonight. I need to just go home and have a glass of wine and go to sleep. He never talked to me again. And it was because of his 
baggage and the story that he then told himself about my not wanting to talk to him that evening meant that I was blowing him off. But I don't want to have to be in a relationship where I constantly have to reassure you like, no, honey, really, I just need to rest tonight. And uh, it's especially when you're new to a relationship, if you've got an established relationship that you can have those conversations a little bit more openly, but when you're new, and I, I just really found that there was a lot of people with baggage, it was either financial baggage or previous relationship baggage. And they kind of took out the sins of all of the previous dates that they had on you. And they didn't even give you a chance. You were disqualified at the first transgression. It's important to see that right away and to see, uh, I can't be with somebody who's dumping his baggage out, hasn't done the work, who is blaming you or taking things personally. It's, it's just so unhealthy. And I don't want somebody that just sees life through a lens of negativity and mm -hmm. assumes the worst in each situation. Like give someone the benefit of the doubt and call me the next day. And, or text me the next day and say, is this a better day? Can we talk tonight and see how yeah. that goes? And if it becomes a pattern with me where every night I'm like, oh, no, not tonight. I have this going on. Then absolutely take the information and make a decision, an educated decision, but don't just jump to the worst case conclusion after a first experience. Yeah, that says a lot about him and not you and what partnership could look like, which would be pretty awful. And I always say like, I'm going to show up curious and positive and exploratory for you. I want you to show up that way for me. Absolutely. Um, so did you find love? I did. And I actually was introduced to a man through mutual friends of ours. And ironically, we met at my, I did a posthumous 50th posthumous birthday party for my husband and my, one of my good friends, husbands is in a band and she, the bass player in the band was going through a divorce at the time. We didn't get together obviously at that party, but he had asked the friends about me and I wasn't in a position where I was ready to have a serious relationship. I was kind of doing my man testing and figuring things out. And it was about a year later that I reached out to him and said like, Hey, I understand if you're still interested, let's get together. And so we've been dating. It's been very slow, very slow. And I both, that was a little bit by intention. And I think now we're kind it's been a year, a little over a year, and now we're speeding things up a bit, but he was dealing with tying up his loose ends. And I was still dealing with tying up my loose ends and he's, a good guy. And it's just, again, you know, the curiosity, I'm still in that phase of curiosity because we went so slow. Many things still feel very new. And I don't feel like we're at the place in a relationship where probably a lot of people are when they've been dating over a year. And, you know, we're still kind of figuring out our vibe and figuring out our groove, but I'm definitely, I have that spirit of curiosity and I'm definitely curious to see where this is going to continue to go. And, and I really, there's so much I like about him and the compatibility about him. And it's, you know, it's interesting, Sandy. And one of the things that I think about all the time is I had this expectation of what a guy should look like when I first started dating and they needed to physically have these attributes and they needed to do this and they needed to show up like that. And it's not about lowering your expectations. It's about shifting them. It's about prioritizing 
getting your values straight, knowing what's really important to you in a long-term relationship and what are the things that are going to matter beyond the physical compatibility because the guys that I had the most physical explosive attraction to that fizzled out really quickly and it's you know other guys that came to the table with so much more it's just been sustainable and and that's what I love about this relationship is it's just so much more and there definitely is the chemistry part of it too and a physical attraction but there's just so much more that's wrapped up in this that I'm excited about. Well, I'm really happy for you. And I love that you shared how you met and how you pacing the relationship and how you shifted your mindset around dating. I think that is, if people don't listen to anything else in this episode, I hope that they listen to this because this is, this is something I try to knock into people's heads. It's people have a type, you know, I, I had somebody call me once and said, I'm looking for somebody who has to be a golf player. And I said, really? So what happens if 10 years from now, he breaks an arm? Like, or, you know, some, are you going to divorce him because he can't play golf anymore? Is that really a deal breaker for you? People don't think about it. So I love that you were able like to have this incredible approach to dating and love and and pacing and all of it. You know, I can really see how you practice being a woman of value through everything you've shared. And I think it's it's just so inspirational. Well, it was a journey and it didn't happen overnight because I definitely was after the, you know, you had to look a certain way, you had to be a certain way, you had to dress a certain way. And it's funny because when I first started dating this person and one of my, and I said to one of my friends, I'm not sure. And I said, he's not typically the type of guy that I date. And she said, okay, well, how's that worked for you? <laughs> and I was like, oh, not good. <laughs> so it was a little bit of a slap of reality that maybe I did need to try something different and try something new. That's unusual for a friend to be that able to have perspective because most friends would be like, oh, I support you no matter what. And, you know, what a jerk. And to have somebody actually be like a dating coach with you is pretty incredible. Well, I think they want me to be happy. And I think they saw that what I was doing wasn't making me happy and it can get frustrating and you can get into that dating rut where you're like, oh, there's no guys out there and online and they're to this and I'll never find anyone. And it's just, you will, you have to believe that that stuff is a possibility for you. And I had a mantra that I just love. I want to share with everybody was that my ideal guy, I'm looking for him and he's looking for me. And what I want is when we meet each other that I know, and I'm open to that. And I just, I would tell myself that all the time. And I just really, even when I didn't believe it, I told myself that. And because it felt better to say that than, oh gosh, there's no one good out there. They all suck and I'll never find anyone. That doesn't feel good. So I try to just flip my language around to something that feels better. So do you have any other words of advice for women who are thinking about or looking for love after they lose a spouse? I think be curious about what's out there, but also be very discerning. And like I said, if it just seems too good to be true, if you can't meet someone in person, that's the key. You've got to be able to meet them in person and meet them quickly. And I've told guys who are out of the country 
when you get back to the States or back to a commutable distance for me, look me up and cut off the communication. Because once you go down that rabbit hole, it's hard to get yourself out. And again, you're dealing with professionals and don't think that you're smarter than them because you're not. And I, so I really, and then just be open to the process, just be curious and lean into that curiosity and don't go on multiple dates. That's probably one thing as a widow because, and don't compare. That's, that's the number one thing I want everyone to know is don't compare to your late spouse because every relationship lives in a unique space. Like your children, you love all your children the same. You like them for different reasons and it's a very unique relationship. So be open to building that unique relationship that doesn't live in the shadow of comparison and give yourself some time because it may not happen on the first date or the first three dates. And I think I dated, we were probably 12 dates into our relationship before I was like, okay, I think I can really do this. Like really I'm ready and I can really do this. And I had to allow that process to unfold. And if I would have just said after three dates, nope, I'm out, I would have missed out on a really wonderful relationship. Really sage advice. And the words that keep coming through are curiosity and hope. And I think that it's it's really just inspirational to hear you, to hear your story, to hear how you've done the work. And it's a continued process. I mean, we're all, I believe, on a journey. We're never done. And having that ability to stay open and curious is a huge part of our own personal growth. So uh, thank you for this really inspirational conversation, Susan. Let our audience know how they can find you, find your podcast. Absolutely. I, you can, I have a website, tendrilsofgrief.com, www.tendrilsofgrief.com. The podcast is Tendrils of Grief and it's available on all the different podcasting sites. So you can look that up however you listen to podcasts. I'll be happy to include the information for you to put in the show notes. And that's typically how I, and you can fill out forms on my website. So if you want to contact me for any reason, I'd love to chat. And, and I just, I really am passionate about widows and dating and finding love again, or just really being the, your best version of yourself. If that's not dating, that's okay. It doesn't have to be. It's whatever works for you. Couldn't agree more. I think that when you do this work, everything grows, everything changes, every relationship that you have improves when your relationship with yourself improves. And the byproduct is you also find love, but you can get paid more money. Lots of things change. Your kids respect you more. I mean, everything, everything changes. So I do want to say before in that vein, because I do think this is important. I left my job. I took the job that was less money. And within two years, I was approached by a recruiter with my ideal job. If I would have hand selected a job for myself, it would be this job that I now have. And it found me. And I don't know that I would have been ready for that job had I stayed in that toxic organization in in that dysfunction and didn't honor myself. And I feel like when you move the wrong people, the wrong situations out of your life, you make room for the right ones to enter in. What a great way to end this episode because it is just such an important message. We often hold on to what's not working because it feels safe in some way, even if it's toxic. 
And by letting go, you open to what's really meant to be. And that goes for jobs, for our personal relationships, friendships. There are just things in life that need to be let go of. And that's the only way you really can develop into your full self. And so thank you for sharing that last tidbit. So much good, good information here. And, um, you know, please find Susan, listen to her podcast. And if you love our show, please rate and review us. Give us a five-star review if you can. Uh, it really, really helps. As Susan knows, it helps our podcast grow even larger and get to more ears. And um, we hope you go on your last first date very soon. Bye.